Luke, Salvation for All by Elizabeth Vieira Talbot Read by Elizabeth Vieira Talbot Pacific Press Publishing Association Chapter 1 Salvation for the Fearful The flawless plan proceeded with incredible speed and remarkable efficiency. The rescue of all 33 miners trapped under 700,000 tons of rock put an end to the longest underground entrapment in the history of the world. The saga, which started on August 5, 2010, when the mine collapsed, dragged on for 69 days as the world watched spellbound in solidarity with the Chilean people and its government, while the rescuers continued their restless efforts. Can you imagine being alive nearly half a mile underground, 2,041 feet, knowing that there's absolutely nothing you could do to get out? Help could only come from above. And it did. No cost was too great. It was after 17 days with no contact with the miners that the word that they were still alive circled the globe. For 52 days after that, the country placed all of its resources in bringing the trapped miners to the surface. Nothing like this had ever been successfully attempted before. Meanwhile, the men underground had only two choices, faith or fear. And they chose faith over fear. As they waited, they prayed. One of them, Sepulbeda, described his choice. I was with God and with the devil, and I reached out for God. On October 12, global audiences in the hundreds of millions, myself included, watched the live TV images showing the first rescuer arriving at the bottom, filmed by the miners. Just over 24 hours later, all 33 miners and all the rescuers were on the surface, celebrating in joy beyond words. I can't describe the joy we are all feeling right now, said one of the miners. I can't even describe what I felt, and I was just watching it on TV. Two words kept coming up in the interviews that followed. All and joy. All had been rescued, the healthy and the sick, the strong and the weak. All had been saved through the plan designed from above. The resolution of the rescuers to reach the trapped miners overcame all the obstacles they found. And at the end, only pure joy remained. All had been saved from sure death. The Gospel of Luke was written to announce a rescue of even greater magnitude. The human race was buried under sin, with no possibility of eternal survival. Help could only come from above. And it did, announces Luke in the most excited tone. The Savior of the world came down to fulfill heaven's plan to rescue the world. As you can imagine, this gospel is filled with joy and excitement because no cost was too great for heaven and salvation has been achieved for all.
one Savior for all. Luke's portrait of Jesus is one Savior for all. This gospel, the longest book of the New Testament, uses the nouns Savior and salvation more than any other gospel. God designed a plan to rescue us, and Jesus came to fulfill it. But who could be saved? The strong? The learned? The religious? I am glad you asked, says Luke. Salvation is for all. And he will narrate this whole gospel in a way that will make his point loud and clear. One of the fascinating ways in which he makes his point is by telling a story about a man, which is then followed by another story about a woman. His incorporation of women narratives in parallel to men's stories highlights that even women are included in the good news. Go, Luke! A few of these men-women pairs are Zechariah and Mary, Luke 1, Simeon and Anna, Luke 2, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian, Luke 4, the centurion of Capernaum and the widow of Nain, Luke 7, a man losing a sheep and a woman losing a coin, Luke 15, etc. Luke's desire to include every human being in the plan of salvation may be observed in the way he presents the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, Luke 3, 23-38. But perhaps the most radical of all his theological proposals is the fact that salvation includes even those who don't seem to qualify, the lowly, the poor, and the outcast. Story after story will usher in a new era of reversals when it comes to qualifying for eternal life. The outcast is a blessed one, and the proud is sent off empty. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Luke 1, 52 and 53. In this gospel, you and I find hope and a new song of deliverance. The Savior has come for such as us. Fearful people shouting for joy. A great example of Luke's emphasis is the juxtaposition of an important old priest with an ordinary young woman in the first chapter of the Gospel. Please take a moment to read these two stories together in Luke 1, 5-80. What a fantastic comparison! Perhaps one of the most striking points is that both are fearful. Both stories are structured so similarly. Introduction of parents... Angel Gabriel comes to announce a miraculous birth. Both have obstacles to childbearing. Both respond with fear and are told to fear not. Both are promised a son, given the name and the role of their son, and given a sign before Gabriel departs. Both Jesus, the Savior, and John, the forerunner, would be miracle children. John, because his mother was old and barren. Jesus, because... He would be conceived through the Holy Spirit, and his mother was a virgin. Both Zechariah and Mary would eventually trade their fear for joy, as each one of them would erupt in joyful singing to the Lord. Luke 1, 
68 to 79. As a matter of fact, this trading of fear for joy happens constantly throughout this gospel. Lots of celebrations going on. Luke believes in prayer and in the power of the Holy Spirit to internalize the reality of the salvation offered. When confronted with the immensity of God's rescue plan, everyone becomes extremely joyful and they choose faith over fear, erupting in praises. May this be your experience throughout our time together in this booklet. May you choose faith over fear and may your heart burn with a joyful woohoo! Chapter 2 Salvation for the Marginalized Have you ever received such very good news that you simply could not contain it? News so incredibly good that you just had to go out and tell the whole world about what had just happened to you? It happened to me. Both of my parents went through cancer surgeries and long-term treatments. The first brush of my family with this terrible disease was my father's stomach cancer. Doctors discovered a huge tumor and suggested a very radical surgery, which would leave only 10% of his stomach intact. The day of the surgery arrived. We all went to the hospital and were told of an approximate time when the surgery would end. We knew this was a high-risk procedure, and we were given a little pager with a small screen through which we could receive messages while my dad was in surgery. Hours went by very slowly, and we were not getting any messages. Finally, there was a vibrating beep. We anxiously looked at the screen. Still in surgery. The appointed time had come and gone, and we started to wonder about the success of the surgery. After several hours had gone by, when it was way past the original estimated time, we finally saw the doctor appear at the far end of the waiting room. We stood up. We were trying to read every possible expression in his face to tell us what the news was before he started to speak. But we couldn't read anything. We had this eerie feeling. It felt like he was walking in slow motion. The time it took him to cross the room seemed like years. My family made a semicircle around him, and then he spoke. Good news, he said. And then he went on and on explaining the procedure and the reasons why they thought it was a success. But I don't remember a word he said then. I only remember the first two words. Good news. Good news. I felt like telling, no, yelling the good news to every single person in that waiting room. The cancer is out. The cancer is out. Good news. In this chapter, we will relive the moment in which the heavenly angels announced the greatest news ever proclaimed to human beings. Good news! Good news! The Savior is born! And most amazingly, this good news is for all the people. Luke 2, 10. Including shepherds. The fullness of time. And the day arrived. 
After thousands of years of waiting and waiting and waiting for the good news, Luke is the only gospel writer who gives us the last piece of the puzzle of Jesus' birth. There were many prophecies that foretold the birth of Jesus in the Jewish scriptures, and everything was lined up for the appointed time. A Savior would come and crush Satan's head, Genesis 3.15. The blessings would be for all the families of the earth, Genesis 12.3. He would be of the Davidic line, 2 Samuel 7.12-16, and many more. But there was one problem. The prophecy said that the coming Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. But Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth. Luke unveils the mystery by telling us that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Luke 2, 1 and 3. Isn't it amazing that God already knew about this event hundreds of years before and revealed it to his prophet? What an incredible God we serve! Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Verse 4. We are starting to see God's design behind all this. Everyone thought that Caesar Augustus was calling the shots, but in reality, there was a much greater design behind it all. The God of heaven was accomplishing His purposes to save the world. So many times I would like to see behind the veil, behind the circumstances that sometimes make no sense. One day Jesus will show me the view from above. I always marvel at God's ability to make all things, yes, all things, even the census decreed by a Roman emperor, turn out for the good of those who love him. See Romans 8:28. Luke has a great interest in history, and in his gospel he gives many historical references which would allow his audience to perfectly locate the times and places that he's talking about. The fact that the census is an important piece of the puzzle is highlighted by its repeated use. See Luke 2, 1, 2, 3, and 5. Because of the census, each family will head to their ancestral city, and Joseph and Mary, being descendants of David, will head to Bethlehem, which means house of bread. But what does Bethlehem have to do with King David? Well, I'm so glad you asked. David was born in Bethlehem, and all his family was from Bethlehem. You may read the fascinating story of his anointing in Bethlehem in 1 Samuel 16. Don't you love how everything starts making sense in the big scale when we connect the dots? God has acted in patterns, seasons, and geography so that we wouldn't miss the coming of the Savior. While they were in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth, Luke 2, 6. Of course, God already knew that hundreds of years before. The days refers not only to the nine months of pregnancy, but to the days from eternity, when God designed the plan of salvation before the foundation of the world. 
Luke uses the concept of time to constantly highlight that God is in charge and that his timing is perfect, and may I add, very different from ours. Mary gave birth to her firstborn, which carries many theological connotations, and she laid him in a manger, a place where animals and humans would share humble accommodations. Luke is very interested in those who are at the edges of society, the poor, the outcasts, the outsiders, the destitute, and the marginalized. And Jesus will share their company out there from the very beginning because there was no room for them in the inn. Verse 7. Now the time has come to declare the good news. To whom will heaven announce this news? The greatest of all time. To the rich and famous? To the theologians or the intellectuals? Who will be chosen to behold the most impressive heavenly scene ever revealed to human eyes? Perhaps the ones who need it most. Unworthy Witnesses Leave it to heaven to choose shepherds as the first recipients of the good news. That God would choose the lowly and the humble is a Lucan theme, highlighted from the very beginning of his gospel. See Luke 1. 52 and 53. There were two groups of people that were not allowed as witnesses in a court of law in the first century, shepherds and women. Isn't it interesting that Luke mentions that the first witnesses of Jesus' birth were shepherds and the first witnesses of his resurrection were women? Luke 24, 1-12. God reveals himself to the needy, the least, the last, the ones who are longing for something new. God reveals himself to the unworthy because the only thing that recommends us to God is our need. The term shepherds creates an inclusio, a narrative sandwich like bookends, starting and ending a narrative with the same topic. In the announcement of Jesus' birth, Luke 2, 8 and 20. Even though their social status is at the bottom of the strata of power and privilege, they're highly favored of heaven. This night, the angels will bypass the temple, where they were expected to appear, see Luke 1.11, and instead will come to the farm. God does not approve of religious monopolies. In contrast to other ancient religions and their gods, the Creator is not a God of buildings but of people. He will send His agents to wherever there are teachable and humble hearts, ready to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. As the shepherds keep watch over the flocks at night, Luke 2, 8, in the same region where a thousand years earlier, another young shepherd by the name of David watched over his father's flocks, an angel of the Lord suddenly appears to them. The angel brings the best news ever heard by human ears, but they don't know that. Therefore, they were terribly frightened. Verse 9. Many times we respond with fear when we don't understand the plan. In this case, the original text tells us that they experienced a mega fear. The term for great in Greek is mega, and for fear is phobos, from where we get our English word phobia. You know that feeling, don't you? You see something or you hear some news, 
and you react to it with great fear that turns your stomach into a knot, makes your palms sweaty, and sends your head spinning. Something that comes suddenly, unexpectedly, and without much explanation is scary. We have all experienced mega fear in our lives, haven't we? But this time, the angel will explain God's plan and invite the shepherds to trade their mega fear for mega joy. Understanding the Angelic Announcement In order to fully understand the force with which Luke narrates the following event, we must first take a look at Caesar Augustus. Octavian was the adoptive heir of Julius Caesar, in power from approximately 31 BC to AD 14. He received the title of Augustus in 27 BC. As a matter of fact, after 27 BC, his official name was Imperator Caesar Divifilius, son of God, Augustus. The last word in his name suggested that he was something above human. During his rule, there was a great emphasis on peace. He established what became known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and the increased safety made empire-wide travel possible, which led to prosperity. That Jesus would be born under Augustus' reign, verse 1, is more than a coincidence. This was a time for travel, for business, for trade and commerce. It is estimated that the Romans built about 53,000 miles of roads spanning from as far north as Scotland to the east at Euphrates, the greatest Roman contributions to land travel. This was a perfect time for good news to be spread, and heaven had been preparing for it. Caesar Augustus was venerated for his achievements. He was referred to as the Savior of the world. And an inscription that refers to his birthday reads, Good news, gospel, evangelia, to the world. Now, the angels are coming to announce the birth of someone much greater than Caesar Augustus. How will they highlight that fact? What superlatives will they use to announce to the shepherds the birth of the greatest Savior and Lord known to all mankind? The announcement. Good news of mega joy. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Mega fear. Verse 9. It seems normal that they experienced mega fear, because they didn't understand what they were seeing. But immediately the angel explained the purpose of his visit, using some of the most amazing words recorded in the whole Bible. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Verses 10 to 12. In other words, woohoo! The time has come, and the news is greater than any good news you have heard before, says the angel. Let me explain. Because the shepherds felt mega fear, the angel starts his announcement with, Do not be afraid. This is the most common exhortation in the whole Bible. 
God is always sending us this message. Don't be afraid. I guess we are pretty fearful people. And He's always reminding us of His presence with us and His intentions towards us and overall His salvation for us. Then the angel goes on. I announce good news. Uangelizomai. See verse 10. Okay, the shepherds could have thought. We have heard of good news before. Every time Augustus has a birthday, we hear the proclamation of good news everywhere. Oh no, says the angel. This is good news of great, mega joy. See verse 10. There is nothing like it. Trade your mega fear for mega joy. And this is not just for the Romans. It will be for all the people. Verse 10. Emphasis supplied. And there is more. Today, in the city of David, as the prophecy pointed out, for you, verse 11, yes, it is for you. Can you believe it? It's not just for the intellectuals, the know-it-alls, the high status, the theologians, the Jews. No, for you, shepherds, marginalized, at the edges of society. For you, dear reader, and for me. Woo-hoo! A Savior has been born for us. Okay, the shepherds could have thought. We have heard of a Savior before. We know about the Savior, Caesar Augustus. Oh no, says the angel. This is a real Savior. The one the world has been waiting for. There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Verse 11, emphasis supplied. Yes, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Lord, your Savior, much greater than Augustus, mega Savior. The announcement of the angel follows the same pattern as all the previous birth announcements in Luke. Appearance, fear, announcement of birth, sign, and outcome. The sign that the angel gives the shepherds relates to the humble beginnings of our Savior. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Verse 12. A manger? What a paradox! The Savior of the world in a manger? But the shepherds were in for even more surprises. Peace on earth. Music was a big part of the Roman culture. As a matter of fact, many official announcements and occasions were accompanied by music. And just in case the shepherds were still wondering about the mega news, much greater than the one about Augustus' birth, Oh, says the angel, you were expecting a choir? What you have seen before in the Roman celebrations is no choir at all. This is a choir. Suddenly, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. Verse 13. How about that for a real choir? Oh, yes, adds the angel. You're used to hearing about the Pax Romana, the Roman peace accomplished by Augustus. Well, listen to our song to understand what the real Savior has accomplished. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased. Verse 14, emphasis supplied. Peace for the whole earth, not just Rome? That's right. Everyone on earth could be at peace with God through Jesus Christ. Talk about good news of mega joy. Sometimes I imagine the angels' rehearsals spanning hundreds of years in preparation for that very night. 
I imagine them asking every 100 years, is this the night? And God answering, no, not yet. Keep rehearsing. Can you imagine their excitement when they finally got to sing the song? Don't you feel like singing by now? I sure do. In the Gospel of Luke, the common response to the revelation of the good news is to praise the Lord. Joy is a big word for Luke, and he repeats it many times. When you realize what God has done for you, I don't think you can help it. Joy and praise fills your heart like an overflowing fountain. Practice praising the Lord, and you'll see how your perspective changes and your day gets better. This is the third of four songs in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Everyone is singing. These four hymns became known by their first Latin words. The Magnificat, Luke 1, 46-55, sang by Mary. The Benedictus, Luke 1, 68-79, sang by Zechariah. Gloria in Excelsis, Luke 2, 14, sang by the angels. The Nunc Dimittis, Luke 2, 29-32, sang by Simeon. I feel like singing glory to God myself. The shepherds went straight to Bethlehem and found everything exactly as he had been told to them. For details, read Luke 2, 15-19. Yes, they went in a hurry, verse 16, to see the good news of mega joy that they had heard about. And they found the baby, the Savior, the Christ. We are told about how they were transformed when they saw him. No trace of fear, just praise. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Verse 20. They became the first evangelists in Luke. As they repeated what was told to them, verse 17, and praised God for what they had heard and saw. Don't you wish we could have seen what they saw? Good news for you and me. The truth is that we can experience what the shepherds experience. This announcement was only the beginning of the good news of mega joy. Jesus was born to give his life for us, and he did accomplish what he came to do when he died on the cross, Luke 23, and resurrected on the third day, Luke 24. Everyone who believes in him may have peace with God right now, at this very moment. Accept him as your Savior, and he will give you the peace of his presence, the forgiveness of your sins, and the assurance of eternal life. That is the reason why he was born on that fateful night. The English term gospel comes from the Old English Godspell, which means good news, and it is a translation from the Greek noun euangelion. Even though this Greek term was used in secular settings to announce the birthday of Augustus or other official announcements, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Septuagint, used the term many years before Jesus' birth to announce God's ultimate deliverance of his people. For example, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns, Isaiah 52, 7, 
See also Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. When Jesus started inviting people to believe in the good news, gospel, see Mark 1.15, Luke 4.18, his listeners knew that the Jewish scriptures, translated to Greek, announced the day of salvation with this term. Eventually, the gospel became Paul's favorite term, see Romans 1.16 and 17, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his perfect death, and his perfect resurrection on our behalf. The Savior announced by the angels that day is the Savior proclaimed by the Christian Church, Jesus Christ. You may have days when you feel unworthy, unqualified, undeserving, days in which you feel like a failure, fragile and weak, forgotten by the whole world and even those who are supposed to care, days when the phone does not ring and the mailbox is empty, well, in those days, remember that salvation is for those who feel marginalized by others. They are never forgotten by God. The angels bypassed the temple and went straight to the farm. They bypassed the theologians and went to the shepherds. Because the only ones who can really get the good news are those who understand the bad news. We can't. God can. God did. May you hurry to the feet of our Savior, Jesus Christ, today. Please join me and the shepherds in praising God for what He has done on our behalf by inserting your name in the blanks. Blank went back, glorifying and praising God for all that blank had heard. Luke 2.20 Trade your mega fear for mega joy and start singing now. We will be joining the angelic chorus. Chapter 3, Salvation for the Outsiders I still remember it as if it had happened yesterday. I was 12 years old and we were coming to live in the United States for one year in order for my dad to complete his first master's degree at Andrews University. It was like coming to an earthly promised land. In preparation for this new life, I decided to get baptized. I sealed my commitment as a disciple of Jesus Christ on the day before our flight from Buenos Aires to Los Angeles. I was on a mountaintop of my short 12-year-old life, and everything was going to be great. We arrived in the United States during the Christmas season, and I had never seen so many presents around a Christmas tree before. My aunt Shirley made sure this was a holiday season to remember, and I still do. After a few days of vacation, we made it to Bering Springs, Michigan. It was February 1975, and to my delight, the ground was covered with snow. We were given a small but comfortable apartment where we would spend the next 13 months. We found people to be very friendly, and soon we had everything we needed. Plates, glasses, cups, blankets, pots, etc. Thanks to a wonderful church ministry called Dorcas, we were given not only used house appliances and utensils, but snow boots, warm clothes, and coats. We had really arrived to a wonderful and cozy place. But there was one little problem. Although I had already completed the sixth grade by the end of the previous year in Argentina, 
I would have to join the sixth grade again for half a year due to the different school calendar in the United States. Not again! But really, that was a small price to pay for such a delightful experience. And then it happened. Even though I had studied some English, I soon realized that in class I didn't understand much. Besides, I wasn't dressed like some of the popular girls, and I wasn't making too many friends because I couldn't really communicate. Back in my country, I was used to being one of the top students in my class. Now, I was not doing well. I couldn't understand. I wasn't popular. I looked and I felt like I didn't belong. Then it hit me. I was an outsider. I was not part of this group, and there was nothing I could do about it, even though I really wanted to belong. I went home crying. Being an outsider was a new experience for me. I felt miserable, even though I had everything a 12-year-old girl could ask for. But I was an outsider, and nothing could change that, or so I thought. And then something surprising took place. I was found by a compassionate girl with glasses, Linnell Blazon, a daughter of one of the university professors. She became my best friend. She took me snowmobiling, and we would spend hours and hours in her basement doing homework, eating snacks, and playing ping pong. Her family took me to see the Nutcracker, which we would have never been able to afford. She gave me clothes that she no longer used, and made me part of her family. I don't think she ever realized what she did for me. Linnell convinced me that I was not an outsider. Her kindness changed everything, and once again, I had a sense of belonging. I will never, ever forget that. Have you ever felt like an outsider at work, in school, in church, or even in your own family? Perhaps you think or believe a little differently than the others, or come from another place than everybody else, or see reality from a different perspective. In this chapter, we will study Jesus' first public announcement in the Gospel of Luke regarding His mission. It was good news for all. There were no outsiders in the kingdom of God, not even those who came from the other side of the border. And believe it or not, not Everyone liked that. Homecoming The narration of this event starts in Luke 4.14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through all the surrounding district. The words are very similar to Luke 4.1, where the Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness. Now the power of the Spirit continues to be with Jesus, leading Him back to Galilee. And we are told that the news about him is spreading, that everyone is praising him, verse 15. But this Sabbath is special. It is the homecoming Sabbath. Jesus is coming back to his own town of Nazareth. Verse 16, see also Luke 2:39. Nazareth was an unremarkable town, located halfway between the south end of the Sea of Galilee and Mount Carmel. Some believe that it did not have a superb reputation, judging by Nathaniel's comment, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? John 1.46 Nowadays, it is a densely populated area, which makes archaeological excavations almost impossible. 
When Jesus came back to his hometown, he came to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, Luke 4.16, as was his custom. The synagogue was the center of the religious and social life of the Jewish community, and it took only 10 Jewish men to organize one. It had multiple functions. Among other things, the synagogue was used as the schoolhouse, the court, the house of prayer, and organized charity, as well as a community meeting house. The core religious meetings took place on the Sabbath day, but there were other services throughout the week. The Sabbath service consisted of two main parts, prayer and the study of Scripture. There were two readings, one from the Torah, the law, and one from the prophets. There was a person selected who would stand up to read the Scripture, see Luke 4, 16. On this special Sabbath, Jesus was the one selected to read and was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Little did the audience know what they were about to hear. Words of Grace Can you imagine being part of the audience that Sabbath morning? Can you place yourself in that small village and feel the anticipation in the air? The carpenter's son, who is growing more and more popular, is back in town and all eyes are on him. As a matter of fact, the narrative slows down here to focus on Jesus. He stood up to read. He was handed. He unrolled. He rolled up. He handed. He sat down. In the very middle of this verbal frame is the core citation of the book of the prophet Isaiah that Jesus reads. It is extremely revealing that after the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him, Jesus found the place where it was written, verse 17. It seems as if Jesus looked for a specific quotation that would allow him to explain his mission. And this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Verses 18 and 19. Wow, what a passage from the Jewish scriptures. Let's analyze it for a moment. The first three lines include me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He anointed me. He has sent me. The mission of the Lord's anointed is summarized as to preach the gospel, the same good news that the angels announced in the previous chapter, to proclaim release and recovery of sight, to set free, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The recipients of the mission are the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. And you thought it wasn't for you. It is. It is for everyone who knows they are poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. What a message. And he has not even started to teach yet. The response of this audience is awesome so far. Everyone who is poor, captive, and oppressed in that worship service is ready for a standing ovation. And the sermon has not even begun. When he finished reading this quotation from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, he closed the book, scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all, 
in the synagogue were fixed on him. Luke 4.20, emphasis supplied. All eyes on Jesus. What is going on? What is he saying? Why did he choose that scripture? Is he about to make an announcement? Jesus sits down, but that's not because he's done. Oh, no. He's just starting. He sat down because it was time to teach. Standing up was for reading the scriptures. Sitting down was for teaching. And this is how he began his teaching. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 21. What do you mean? Today? Are you fulfilling the hopes described in this passage from Isaiah? Are you the me in the first three sentences of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2? Today? Luke typically highlights the immediacy of salvation that comes with the presence of Jesus with the word today. See Luke 19, 9. Jesus has inaugurated the age of salvation. Today, something really amazing is happening in Nazareth, even though the audience is not totally sure what it is. Perhaps the time has come. Perhaps the deliverer is here. Perhaps the time of their liberation has arrived. And once again, we're given their response. All were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Luke 4, 22. Many times Luke will record that Jesus taught from the scriptures, that he preached from the word of God. But only this time the actual content of his teaching, preaching, is reported. He spoke gracious words or words of grace. Grace, amazing grace. Yes, they were testifying well of him, though they were starting to get confused and a little angry as well. Is this not Joseph's son? Verse 22. But then Jesus goes on teaching, and the whole thing takes a turn for the worse. A pivotal piece of the puzzle is about to be revealed, and it will get so bad that the crowd in Nazareth will go from desiring to praise him to attempting to kill him. What can make a crowd change in such a way in a nick of time? Don't rely on crowds to know what you believe. You will find crowds to be as unreliable as tossing waves and sometimes quite exclusive. Not them. Jesus responds in a rather unexpected manner. It seems as if the audience is responding with admiration, but obviously there is much more going on and Jesus knows it. Jesus continues to develop his mission while revealing an inside knowledge of their thoughts. He starts with two sayings, aphorisms, that they are repeating in their minds. They can't fool Jesus. We can't fool Jesus. No matter how we respond on the outside, he always knows what is going on inside. And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Verse 23 emphasis supplied. In other words, doctor, cure yourself. How can you benefit strangers and not us, your own people? You must be mistaken, Jesus. The good news is for us, just for us. And so it was in their thinking, always us versus them. 
Limited perception is the name of the game for this audience from Nazareth. They have no idea who Jesus really is. They think he's just the son of Joseph, but he's so much more. He's the son of God. He's God's agent to bring his favor to the world. He's much more than a miracle worker or a prophetic figure. He's the sinner's savior, and he has come for all, whether they like it or not. Most of my problems with God have been problems of limited perception. I don't see what he sees. I don't know what he knows. My timing is not his timing. He doesn't fit in a box, no matter what I want to call that box. He's greater, more loving, and more compassionate than anyone and anything. And now I know that I can't fully comprehend God. And I would rather have a big God like that. An awesome God. I have come to fully believe that he wants the best for me as soon as possible. And that is all I have. So I have decided to trust his heart, which he fully revealed by dying on the cross for me. And I am an absolutely unworthy person, but I am saved because of him. And that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. It's the only one I have. Woohoo! Now I'm preaching. Okay, let's go back to Nazareth. Their preconceived notion and limited perception regarding the identity and mission of Jesus is their greatest obstacle to receive him. Jesus goes on explaining with a second saying, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Verse 24. You don't know who I am, says Jesus, and my mission is greater than anyone ever imagined. Then he goes on to remind them of two biblical examples of prophets who became agents of God's favors to outsiders. The first one was Elijah. Jesus relates the story and highlights that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and yet Elijah was sent to a widow in Sarephath in the land of Sidon. Verses 25 and 26. Please take a moment to read this fascinating story in 1 Kings 17, 1 to 16. Oh, Jesus, now you're going overboard. What are you saying? It is bad enough to be a widow, low status, very poor, no income. But we're compassionate people. We'll help the widows. But one from Sidon? No, not her. You can't possibly imply that the wicked people from Tyre and Sidon, the region where the evil Queen Jezebel came from, can be recipients of God's favor. Not them. And you can't possibly be saying that God bypassed the widows in Israel and chose the outsiders. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, says Jesus, and I am not done yet. You see, God will reach out to anyone, anywhere. In the gutter where the drunk is lying in his vomit. In the dark corner where the young girl is looking for her next client. Or even in the darkest places, like cold churches where people think they're pretty good and don't need a savior but a medal. God is always looking to announce good news to the poor. And he will send his agents to whoever has a need, whose only recommendation to God is that they have no claim to his favor. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Luke 4, 27. This is another fascinating story. It is found in 2 Kings 5, 1 to 19, and I hope you take time to read it. Yes, we know lepers. These are the worst kind of social religious outsiders. We have them in Nazareth, too. These poor people, cursed and lonely. But this non-Jew from Syria? How could God reach out to him and cleanse him? How come the good news to the poor embrace these wretched outsiders? Not them, Jesus, son of Joseph, not them. But it was all too clear, too transparent, too evident. Enough is enough. And even though it was the Sabbath day and they were good church-going people, there is a time when holy rage takes over and they decided to throw him down the cliff. Luke 4, 28 and 29. He was a God too big for their small minds. Human beings might delay, but they can't frustrate God's purposes. It was not Jesus' time to die yet, so he went his way. Verse 30. His ministry would be marked with hostility, not only at the beginning, but also at the end. A very high price would be paid with the blood of Jesus, because liberty freedom, and release have a price. Liberty for all. My heart was racing with excitement as I walked the few blocks that separated my hotel from the Liberty Bell. I was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, for academic meetings, and this was my chance to see for myself what I had heard and even taught for years. You see, when I studied Jesus' first public discourse in Luke 4 and his reading of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, I learned that this quotation of Isaiah alluded to the year of Jubilee recorded in Leviticus 25, 8 to 55. This was the favorable year of the Lord, when once every 50 years, 7 times 7 years, 49, all slaves were to be set free, all debts were canceled and all property returned to the original owners. If someone had a kinsman redeemer, Goel, this blessed liberty could happen any time, if and when the person's closest of kin paid the ransom. But just in case they didn't, the heavenly kinsman redeemer, Yahweh, would step in for everyone once every seven times seven years. On the Day of Atonement, the ram's horn would sound, see Leviticus 25, 8-10, and everyone and everything would be set free. Seven has always been the number for redemption and freedom in the Jewish scriptures. And that fateful Sabbath in Nazareth, Jesus was proclaiming that he was fulfilling his role as the real Jubilee and ushering in the epoch of salvation. He was the agent through which the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed were to receive real good news release, and freedom. When the United States of America was founded, the dream was that this would be the land of the free, that everyone would have freedom and liberty in this newfound land. I had been told that Leviticus 25.10 was engraved in the Liberty Bell as a reminder of this fact. Proclaim a release or liberty through the land to all its inhabitants. 
parenthesis and emphasis supplied. That's why it is the Liberty Bell. It proclaims liberty to all the inhabitants of the land. I could barely contain myself. After a visit in the small museum, I finally stood in front of the impressive cracked bell. I stood in silence, examining every inch of that piece of history. And there it was, LEV 2510, Roman numbers. It was true. Liberty for all. That was the dream, the promise, and the hope. And so it was in Leviticus, Isaiah, and Nazareth. And so it is today, except that this is no longer a dream, a prophecy, or a hope. It is a reality. All are included in this invitation. No matter where they come from, what they look like, what they're wearing, Dorcas or normal clothes, or their accent, Jesus has broken down all barriers. No outsiders in the kingdom of God. I have been set free because Jesus is my jubilee. Accept Jesus as your Savior if you haven't done it yet. And even if you have, but still carry guilt and shame from the past, pause now and accept His freedom. It is the reality, the favor of God through Jesus Christ, our jubilee, that you don't deserve in any form or shape, is yours. What do you say we celebrate together? Let's repeat this aloud, emphasizing one sentence at a time. It is true. We are free. Jesus is our jubilee. Chapter 4. Salvation for the Destitute When it comes to suffering, all human beings stand on a level ground. Have you noticed that? The rich, the famous, the skilled, the poor, the white collar and the blue collar. When sickness strikes and disease knocks at your door, somehow all social, religious, political lines disappear. And there we are, all sitting in the same hospital waiting room doing just that, waiting. Health and wholeness are needed and wanted by all. Whether you have money or not, somehow we're all united at the very core with a God-given desire to experience quality of life. My family received good news this week. Very good news. Let me explain. About three years ago, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. After some difficult months of surgery, chemo, and radiation, the cancer was no longer there. What followed was a long and tedious time of recovery. I really admire my mother. She went through all of this with the best possible disposition, giving the recovery her best shot and clinging to her faith in God, she faced procedure after procedure and treatment after treatment. And the flame of her spirit was not extinguished. In the midst of it all, she made us laugh with jokes and funny expressions. I have photos to prove it. We were hoping that it was all over. But four months ago, they found some spots in her lungs, and after a biopsy, the doctors determined that it was a metastasis of the same cancer that she had before. Obviously, this is not the good news. So we went to the most specialized institution we could find, but no money or insurance can buy health. You just do the best you can, 
Ask God to heal you if it is His will and submit to His care. In this institution, they found a skilled and compassionate doctor. My mother was not just a number to him, but a person in need of hope. He took time to explain options and answered all her questions. He told my parents what his opinion was and how he thought they were to proceed. My parents agreed. The doctor recommended that she take a pill every day that was designed to inhibit the cancer. If after a few weeks the cancer would shrink, she may be able to avoid chemo. So we waited. The day arrived. First x-rays, then blood tests, then the appointment with the doctor, all in the same day. I was in my office, waiting for my mother's call. And the phone rang. Praise the Lord, she said. The cancer has shrunk. The doctor had showed them the x-rays. The size of the tumors had shrunk, and there were no new ones. The doctor was very optimistic. We are all overflowing with hope and praise. Hope. What a big word. We all need some hope. But what if you have run out of hope? What if plan A, plan B, and plan C have failed? In this chapter, we will analyze the story of two people who were at their wit's end. They had no more options and they were in need of hope. One of them was a known person with a high status in society. The other had none. No money, no status, no name, and a long-term disease. She was destitute and alone. How did Jesus treat those who suffered, like this lonely and helpless woman? Let me give you one clue. He gave them a lot more than health. An important man. Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 22, leads to a crescendo regarding Jesus' authority, first over nature, then over evil powers, thirdly over disease, and finally over death. Jesus had been in an unclean territory, geographically and ritually, among tombs and close to demons and swine, Luke 8, 26-39. As Jesus returns from the other side, he's met by a Jew. But this is no ordinary Jew. No, sir. No, ma'am. This is an important, respectable, and reputable man. Immediately, we're given his name, Jairus, verse 41. He has a lot going for himself so far. He is a man, and he has a name, but there is more. He was an official of the synagogue, verse 41. Wow, move over. He's coming through. This is the type of Jew that may be labeled as an important man. Usually, there was only one official or ruler of the synagogue, and he was responsible for several things, maintaining the order, assigning participants, and making sure the services were conducted appropriately. As I said before, this was an important man. You know these people. They can arrive late to any ceremony because their seats are reserved. They have assigned reserved seating at the table for the reception that follows, and sometimes their names are printed in the program. They may be admired or despised. Either way, they are important. But on this day, Jairus is behaving in an unusual manner for a respectable man. He fell at Jesus' feet 
and began to implore him to come to his house. Verse 41. What a strange sight! This man, by humbly falling at Jesus' feet in total submission, is in fact publicly declaring his desperate need of Jesus. We are all on level ground when suffering knocks at our door. Jairus is no more concerned with honor. All that matters is to have his request granted. He is imploring Jesus to come to his house. His request concerns his child. I think it is really revealing how honor, which would have been the core value of the first century Mediterranean society, becomes secondary when it comes to saving a child. There are those who, in their religious zeal, become critical and harsh regarding other people's children until their own children are in trouble. Then they ask for mercy and grace. I am so glad that God is always the same. His arms are always ready to embrace and his mouth always speaks words of grace to those in need. Soon enough, we discover the reason for Jairus' desperation. He had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. Verse 42. An only daughter? What would a desperate parent do for an only child? I know. I'm an only child. I remember my parents' desperation many times. I've had asthma since I was a little child. Back then, asthma medications were not as advanced as they are now. I still remember occasions when I could not breathe and my parents were rushing me to the hospital across town in our little car. They would drop anything they were doing and drive me there. I especially remember one of those times. It was rush hour. The streets were crowded, and my father would constantly flash the car lights and honk the horn, while my mother would wave her arms frantically through the open window. By the time we arrived at the hospital, my face was turning blue. A parent will do anything to save a child. Anything. Jairus's little girl is dying. Only 12 years old. And even though females were not really esteemed in that society, Jairus tries everything that he can think of to save his little girl. But he's running out of options. This is his last hope. And she's only 12 years old. Let's go, Jesus. Let's rush. We need to get there on time. Her face is turning blue. But the crowds were pressing against him. Verse 42. A destitute woman. Everyone was expecting Jesus to go immediately and help this important man. After all, he had devoted his life to the church. So it is without delay that we are told he went. Verse 42. But then we have an interruption. A terrible and untimely interruption. A woman of all things. A destitute and sick woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And the narrator, instead of finishing Jairus' story and letting us know what happens, starts another story instead. This narrative device, commonly used in the first century, is called intercalation. The narrator chooses to start a second story before ending the first story. If we were to draw it, it would look something like this. Luke 8 40 to 56, intercalation. Jairus' daughter, bleeding woman, Jairus' daughter. 
This narrative format was used when both accounts were to be interpreted together. But what could these two stories possibly have in common? It is a well-known fact that Luke favors male-female pairs, as discussed in the first chapter of this booklet. And Jairus and the Bleeding Woman form one of those pairs. But other than that, this intercalation would not make much sense, or would it? Is there anything in common between this important man and the destitute woman? Even though this same intercalation is also present in other Gospels, Luke will make the parallels between the two stories most striking. He highlights the close ties of common words and topics by his choice of terms, because we're all on level ground when it comes to suffering and our need of Jesus, our desperate need. Back to our stories. We are told that the procession to Jairus' house is interrupted by an unclean woman. The last sentence of the previous story portrayed three important elements. Jairus had a daughter, only daughter, who was 12 years old and was dying. As the narrator transitions to the new story embedded in the original one, we start realizing that there is much in common between both accounts. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone, verse 43. Did someone say 12? 12 years? Do you mean that this woman has been sick as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive? Same period of time? But this woman has no important men to stand up for her. No father, no husband, no mentor, no teacher, no one. She is a good definition of poor in Luke, because poor in the eyes of that society was a term used for those who were excluded, not within the boundaries of those blessed by God, with no honor and with diminished social status. This poor woman was completely destitute, a sick woman with a socially devastating disease that made her ritually unclean. See Leviticus 15, 19-33. What could possibly be worse than that? Well, she had been isolated from her community for 12 years. No man could touch her, socially or sexually. You couldn't invite her for dinner at your house. She could never enter the synagogue. But worst of all, she seemed to have exhausted all of her options of recovery. She was helpless and now materially impoverished because she had spent all she had on doctors. Understandably, Luke, the physician, is somewhat restrained in pointing fingers at the medical profession. But Mark has no qualms remarking, a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Mark 5, 25 and 26, emphasis supplied. So there is much in common for her and Jairus' daughter. Both are women, both dying, both in desperate circumstances, both 12 years in it. The main difference? The destitute woman has no important daddy to speak to Jesus on her behalf. So she will have to do it herself. It is her last hope. And she resolves to pull out all the stops, 
cross as many social and ritual boundaries of appropriateness as necessary and do the unthinkable. The touch of the untouchable. Have you ever asked God, how about me? Have you ever felt that God has power and time for other more important people that not for you? When you hear testimonies of miraculous healings and deliverance, do you wonder if it will ever happen to you? This woman did. Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house when she resolved to make her last attempt. Perhaps he could do something for her on his way to more important endeavors. Because for the last 12 years, this woman had never been welcomed anywhere, but was universally rejected. She had become an expert at being unnoticed. She knew how to do things without calling attention to herself. She sort of had an advanced degree in being invisible. Do you? Do you know how to navigate the crowds, the church, and the colleagues that work so that no one will ask you too many questions and you can stay isolated? Usually it's because we fear no one will understand us. And even if they do, they'll reject us anyway. This untouchable destitute woman came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Luke 8.44 Emphasis supplied. What? She did what? How dare she? Doesn't she know that now she has made Jesus unclean? She's passing her uncleanness to the master. Now she's going to pay for it. Jesus, you better teach her some manners. Wait. Shh. Jesus is talking. Who is the one who touched me? Verse 45. See, I told you. She will be taught a public lesson now in an appropriate social-religious behavior. Or so she thinks. She has done the unthinkable. The untouchable woman, who is not allowed to touch or be touched, see Leviticus 15, 19-33, has just touched Jesus. And he wants to know who has done it. Touch becomes a pivotal word in the story, as different people keep repeating it. She touched. Jesus asked, who touched me? Peter says, everyone. No, Jesus says, someone did touch me. And she finally declares why she touched him. Read Luke 8, 44 to 47. Touch, 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 touch. Understandably, everyone denies it, verse 45, including the woman, because of fear. But Jesus has so much more to offer her. She has already been cured, but Jesus wants to heal her soul also, to make her whole, to give her dignity, to publicly reinstate her into society again. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Verse 47, emphasis supplied. So much captured in just a few words. First of all, she seems to have lost her public invisibility skills. She's noticed by Jesus. You are always noticed by Jesus. Every tear, every thought, every prayer. 
Even if the crowd does not see you, he does. Understandably, she comes trembling. She's afraid. She thinks Jesus will condemn her. How many times do we view God like that, somehow thinking that he is limited by boundaries and conditions set by humans? We feel as if he is going to ask us to wash our faces and get our act together before we can come into his presence. But that is definitely not the biblical picture of God. He's a loving father desperately waiting for his children to come home, even if they're covered with mud or blood. She then fell down before him, verse 47. Just like Jairus, the important man and the destitute woman are in the same position at the feet of Jesus. Our need makes us step on level ground. These two stories are more alike than we thought. And there is so much more. In front of all the people, she declares the reason for her unthinkable social behavior, her ongoing sickness, and then how she has been healed. Oh, Jesus, couldn't you have spared her embarrassment? Couldn't you just take her aside and ask her privately so that she didn't have to suffer the glances of the people and experience shame in public? Oh, my dear child, Jesus responds, you don't really understand me, do you? I had such a surprise for her. I was about to give her so much more, so much more than she ever imagined. And everyone had to witness that. Daddy is here. And he said to her, daughter, verse 48, daughter, daughter. Don't ever think that just because I'm on my way to heal Jairus' daughter, I don't have time left for my daughter. You are my beloved daughter. I welcome you to my kingship. You are my little girl. This is the only story in all four Gospels where Jesus addresses a woman directly as his daughter. She has a new identity and new dignity now. She's the daughter of Jesus, and he has enough time and power for her. She's no longer destitute. She's the king's daughter. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Verse 48. At that moment, Jesus publicly reinstates her to society, and she's accepted under his kingship. She has a new ID tag. She's no longer for sale. She's noticed, loved, and whole. Her faith has brought her to touch Jesus to receive physical cure. But she received from him so much more. She's made whole. She's made well. She is saved. And with a new identity comes a new condition. Peace. Go in peace. Daddy is here. Now we have two stories of two daughters and two daddies. But we have almost forgotten Jairus' daughter. The next verse reminds us that we still need to hear the end of the first story. Don't forget that in order for these two stories to be interpreted together, there must be much in common as we transition back to the previous story. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. 
Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Verse 49, emphasis supplied. Your daughter is highlighted because now there are two daughters in the picture and Jairus's daughter is dead. We're very happy for the destitute daughter. She was cured. She was made whole and she found new kinship. But she interrupted an important trip and now the other daughter has died. When Jesus hears this, he turns to Jairus and reminds him that there is enough for both daughters. Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. Verse 50, emphasis supplied. In Greek, the word faith and the word believe have the same root. They are cognate terms. Jesus is telling Jairus that if he has faith, his daughter will also be made well. If he has the same faith that the destitute daughter had, his own daughter will also be healed and made whole. Yes, there is enough to go around for everyone, even for me and for you. Jesus finally arrives at Jairus' place. He enters the house with three of his disciples and the girl's parents. See verse 51. He offers them a heavenly perspective of the situation. To him, she is just asleep. It is a temporary condition. See verse 52. Those lamenting her death start laughing, mocking Jesus. This scene is very revealing because it highlights the only two possible responses to God's view or reality. You either believe it, even though you don't always understand, or you ridicule and mock his perspective. This is why Jesus had reminded Jairus to believe and not be afraid. Verse 50. It's either faith or fear. May you always choose faith over fear. Believe, not because of the absence of trouble, but because of the presence of Christ. Once again, Jesus touches the untouchable. He touches a corpse, which would have made him unclean. But instead, his touch gives her life. See verse 55. Don't ever be afraid to come to Jesus just as you are, no matter how unclean, destitute, or dead inside you feel. You cannot make him unclean. Just the contrary, he can make you whole. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed. Verses 54 to 56. Amazed is an understatement. They must have been yelling and screaming and crying and dancing, woohooing all over the house. Jesus reminds them to give her something to eat, not only because she needed to regain her strength, but also because sharing a food was a symbol of her restoration to kinship. She is, once again, Jairus's little girl. Children of God These two stories have much more in common than we realized. Both the important man and the destitute woman fell at Jesus' feet. There are two daughters, and both of them have 12 years in common. They are both in desperate circumstances, and through Jesus' touch, they are made whole. By the laws of the land, they were both impure, sick and dead. 
Yet both of them were touched by Jesus and received so much more than simply physical health. Perhaps you are at your wit's end today. Maybe you too are feeling destitute, as if nobody cares and nobody understands. Perpetual emotional, spiritual, and physical diseases may have depleted your energy and you are at the verge of hopelessness. The greatest news I have for you today is that you have been noticed by Jesus and you have been called daughter, son. You have been received into his kingship. See how great the love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. 1 John 3, 1. God knew exactly how Jairus has felt. After all, God himself had an only son, see John 3, 16, who was dying, except that there was nobody to rescue God's son, because he died for a purpose, to restore our place in his kingship. And he did. Now, once again, we are his children. And soon he will take us home with him, never to suffer, mourn, or cry again. See Revelation 21, 4. In the meantime, may you believe in him, touch him with your hand of faith, and see how he makes you whole again and gives you much more than just a physical healing, though many times he chooses to do that too, for which I'm very grateful. Above all things... He will save you and give you peace. Now, let's read together the reality of this new identity. We are children of God. Fill in the blanks with your name. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on blank. That blank would be called a child of God. Yes, and that is what we are. That's our identity. Salvation is for all, even those who are considered destitute in their families, churches, workplaces, and social circles. Not for God. You are His child. Woo-hoo! Daughter. Son. Go in peace. Daddy is here. Chapter 5 Salvation for the Undeserving I know that many times during my youthful years, I was undeserving of my parents' kindness, and yet they were compassionate and loving towards me. I remember this one time, but before I share my story with you, let me tell you a little bit about my mother. She is extremely skilled with her hands. She can make any bouquet of flowers look like a $100 arrangement. She carves wood, she saws, she makes sculptures from clay, and she draws. She constantly surprises me with her creativity. She cuts hair, works in the garden, and so on and so on. You get the picture. She is awesome with manual projects. One day in my early teens, I thought I could do better than she could. Instead of accepting my mother's help, I decided I would cut my own hair. So I locked myself in the bathroom and got busy. And then I experienced what is known in psychology as escalation of commitment. 
I realized that something was wrong, but since I had already invested some energy and pride into the project, I kept going, trying to fix the problem. However, it went from bad to worse. Has that ever happened to you? You realize that you're going the wrong way. But by then, you have invested money, time, honor, and skills, so you stay the course, investing even more, regardless of the obvious fact that it is getting you nowhere. Very soon, I realized that I was in deep trouble. I was trying to clean up the mess that I had created on my head, but my problem was that I was running out of hair to fix and fast. I had only a few inches of hair left, much less than I had imagined at the beginning of my venture. And it was all uneven. Then it finally dawned on me that this would probably be a good time to go back to my mother's room, ask her for forgiveness for rejecting her help, and become her slave for life. Just kidding. If she could just make me look like a normal person again, even though I thought I was beyond repair. I came out of the bathroom with a pair of scissors and a desperate look on my face. My mother had every right to reject me and to make me live with the consequences of my actions. But she asked me to sit on the kitchen chair and with love and much skill, she spent a long, long time trying to make some semblance of respectability out of the little hair I had left. I ended up with a cute, very short haircut and a grateful soul. After I had returned to the land of the living, we went out to celebrate my new look. Sometimes our mistakes are much greater than just a haircut. Many times we go beyond the point of no return, or so we think. Sometimes after rejecting all help that has been offered to us, we end up in places and situations which we never imagined we could find ourselves in. An X-rated website, a shady massage parlor, an affair, bankruptcy, an addiction, a pregnancy out of wedlock, an abortion, homelessness, a crime, and the list goes on. We know deep in our hearts that we do not deserve any compassion, help, or restoration. We have hit the bottom, and that is a decisive point. Should we go back to God? Can He still save us? Or will He say, I told you so? Perhaps we can work for our salvation from now on. How can we convince God to help us? even though we know we don't deserve it. If you're pondering any of these questions, please continue reading as we explore two of the most amazing narratives found only in the Gospel of Luke. First, the parable of the love of a father for his undeserving child, known as the prodigal son. Then we will look in some detail at a real-life prodigal son, and the way Jesus responded to him when he decided to ask for help, when he found out what a father's love is capable of. The Parable of the Undeserving Child In response to a charge from the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus tells three of the most famous parables in the Bible. The charge was, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
Luke 15, 2. We are told in the previous verse that tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus. And instead of rejoicing at such response from the lost, the Pharisees and scribes started grumbling. As a matter of fact, the religious leadership in the Gospel of Luke are usually seen grumbling, not joining the celebration. The main issue with the sinners is that they can't be included in the company of those who call themselves righteous. But Jesus seems to constantly disregard the ethical and ritual boundaries of the time and insists in welcoming the fearful, the marginalized, the outsiders, the destitute, the undeserving, the sinners. He treats the unclean and the ones of low reputation as if they were acceptable. That's because they were, and they are, acceptable to him. He was eating with them as a sign of inclusion in his kinship. Then Jesus proceeds to tell three parables, and the stakes are raised. First comes the story of one lost sheep out of a flock of 100. Then the story of one lost coin out of 10. These are fascinating parables that explain how God treats the lost. I hope you take a moment to read them in detail. Luke 15, 3 to 10. At the end of each parable, there's a joyful celebration because that which was lost is eventually found. The third parable Jesus tells here is the climactic story of the lost son. Not one out of 100, not one out of 10, but one of two. As valuable as sheep and coins may be, the son is of greatest value to a father and of immeasurably greater importance. And this is how this parable, a metaphoric story that explains the main point, begins. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the state that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Verses 11 and 12. Much is said in these first sentences. Upon the father's death, the younger son would have received a portion of the inheritance, even though not as large as the older brother. But in this case, the younger son initiates the request before his father dies. In other words, his request says, I wish you were dead. Such insolence. With this request, the younger brother, in effect, rejects his father, his family, his kinship. The father, who knows that there is no love without freedom, divided his wealth between them, verse 12, meaning that both of the sons got their part. From here, we won't hear about the older son again until later in the story, verse 25 and on. The younger son, deciding that he knows better than anyone else how to run his life, starts on a journey that will lead to a crescendo of infamy. From his request of the inheritance to its disposal, then to his departure, and finally to when he squanders all he has. Living as a Gentile, as a non-Jew in a distant country, see verse 13, he squandered his estate with loose living, verse 13, and prostitutes, verse 30. In that far country, he also experiences an escalation of commitment. He has gone too far, 
and is too invested. His honor is on the line. He thinks he cannot go back. So he continues trying to fix it himself, with only a few inches of hair left. Then a severe famine comes. Verse 14. He hits the bottom. As he has nothing to eat and hires himself to feed swine, an unthinkable job for a Jew, he's so hungry that he wishes he could eat what the pigs are eating. Have you ever felt that low? Have you ever been there or known someone who has? Everything is lost. Family, friends, money, job, dignity. You hit the bottom. And then a light goes on. He knows that he's undeserving of his father's compassion, love, and acceptance. He also knows that even a day laborer is better off in his father's house. And he also believes that his father will have some level of compassion, even though he does not deserve it, and might give him the place of a hired man. So, when he came to his senses, verse 17, I love this pivotal sentence. I wish we all had a moment like that sooner rather than later. He made a resolution. I will get up and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy. In other words, I am undeserving. To be called your son, make me as one of your hired men. Verses 18 and 19. He has a plan. He needs a job. And his father has openings. And enough compassion to let an undeserving child work for him. So he got up and came to his father. Verse 20. The parable of the loving father. But while the son is still far away, we realize that this is not so much a parable about an undeserving child as it is a parable about a loving and compassionate father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Verse 20. Are you kidding me? How is this possible? He did not deserve such a welcome. The young man knows that, so he starts with his rehearsed confession and request. But his words are buried in his father's embrace, and he can't even complete the request to work for a place in his father's household. See verse 21. But his father is not done yet. He's just beginning. Can you imagine the scene? A well-known and wealthy landowner running forgetting his honorable and respectable manners and embracing and kissing his returning son, who had publicly shamed and rejected his father. Then his father, a powerful man, starts giving orders that must be carried out at once. Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Verse 22. These three commands that are recorded are symbolic acts of restoration. The best robe, usually owned by the father himself, would immediately cover the son's shamefulness. The ring, 
even though we're not told what type of ring it was, would probably be the signet ring, the authority to sign the family name in business transactions. Even though some doubt that this is a signet ring, it is consistent with the other two orders, all pointing to the full restoration of the sun as such. The third order is the sandals. The laborers were not given sandals, only the children. By giving sandals to the undeserving child, the father is making a statement loud and clear. There are no second-class children in the kingdom of God. In fact, no one earns a place in it. All receive it by grace. But there is more. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Verse 23. Well, that is going too far. A celebration? And there he is, standing, still with the scissors in his hands, as it were, astonished at his restoration. And just in case he didn't fully get it, the father states publicly that this is his son. This son of mine, verse 24. You never stop being your father's son, your father's daughter. You might say of a spouse, there goes my ex-husband, but you will never say of a child, that is my ex-son. No, you might be lost and undeserving, but you're still a son, a daughter. This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Verse 24. There are many parties in this chapter, many celebrations, much joy and happiness. I don't understand when churches confuse reverence with boredom and depression. Heaven is a happy place and worship is an exuberant and flamboyant experience. When you realize that you are undeserving and yet accepted in Christ, there better be a few woo-hoos or you haven't gotten it yet. The story continues with the older brother, who is grumbling like the Pharisees and scribes at the beginning of the chapter. Jesus will take this opportunity to invite them to join the celebration. After all, they are as undeserving as a younger son, but they are in denial. Please take a moment to complete the reading of this story, verses 25 to 32. Well, you might respond... This is a nice, encouraging story. But that's only a parable. That's all it is. This is not the way it works in real life with God. Really? You think so? Please continue reading and give me a chance to change your mind. After all, we all need a light at the end of the tunnel. The Real Life Prodigal just when you thought it was only a parable, Luke records a fascinating real-life dialogue that will bring the previous parable to life. It is found in Luke 23, 32-43. Let's start from the beginning. Jesus is dying on the cross. Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left, verses 32 and 33. Yes, Jesus was crucified along with two criminals, fulfilling the prophecy 
he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12. The names of the criminals are not specified in this narrative. All we know is that both are evil doers. The Greek word for criminals, kakurgos, is composed of two words, kakos, evil, bad, wrong, and ergon, work, deed, action. In the most literal sense of the word, both of them are evil workers. They have squandered their lives and now are getting what they deserve. The first utterance of Jesus from the cross is one of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Luke 23:34. The soldiers didn't know they were crucifying their kinsman redeemer, their closest of kin, their only hope. The people stare. But the rulers and the soldiers mock Jesus. Romans and Jews are united in their sneering, fulfilling a prophecy. See Psalm 22, 7 and 8. This is the Psalm of the Righteous Sufferer. Read it all in order to understand the force of the prophetic utterance regarding Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is dying the death of a traitor, and the legal charge, King of the Jews, is placed above him. Luke 23, 38. The verb to save is brought up four times in this scene, and it is used as a mockery of Jesus' seeming inability to save himself. As a matter of fact, a contrasting juxtaposition is constantly raised by those who mock him. If he is the Christ, the chosen one, the real king of the Jews, then he should have the ability to save himself. Well, the reality is the exact opposite. Jesus' identity as king and savior is intertwined because his royal identity is sealed through his suffering to save others. This is the irony of the dialogue. Jesus is the king, the Messiah who accomplished the divine purpose of rescuing God's children. That was the plan. But no one could recognize it except one. The unexpected request from an undeserving child. In the midst of the mockery, a contrasting and unexpected voice is heard. One of the criminals had joined the travesty. He was saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us! Verse 39. But the other evildoer responds with a rebuke. Do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Verses 40 and 41. His voice, in contrast to the mocking voices, presents two overwhelming truths. The criminals are suffering justly. Jesus is suffering unjustly. They are guilty. Jesus is innocent. Their condemnation is righteous, but the righteous one is under condemnation. They are undeserving of any compassion. And then, unexpectedly, the man with the dissenting voice turns to Jesus and utters the most outrageous and astonishing request, just like the prodigal son. 
Can I come back home and have part of the inheritance? In other words, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Verse 42. What? What are you talking about? You already squandered all you were given, including your life. Don't you remember who you are, where you have been, and the distant country you spent your life in? You are an evil doer. On what basis should Jesus remember you in his kingdom and give you your inheritance? The only way you will be remembered is as a notorious criminal, an undeserving child who got what he deserved. Well, before we get carried away too far, let's try to understand the request. First of all, the undeserving man calls Christ by his name, Jesus. He did not call him Rabbi or Messiah or Lord. He called him Jesus, a name that by its own definition recalls that Yahweh saves. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. The echo of the angelic announcement rings in our ears. Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2.11, emphasis supplied. The name by which the criminal addresses Jesus is in itself a remembrance of salvation. See Matthew 1.21. The second part of the request is, Remember me. This type of request was usually addressed to Yahweh in the Jewish scriptures. When Yahweh remembered somebody, it didn't mean that the person was just coming back to his mind, but he carried the blessing of his action on behalf of his people in keeping with his covenant. There are many examples of such requests to Yahweh. See Judges 16.28, 1 Samuel 1.11. So this request is not about Jesus having memories of him, but about Jesus acting on his behalf instead. But he is so undeserving. In the Gospel of Luke, the poor, the outcast, the destitute, the marginalized, and the undeserving have great insight regarding Jesus' identity. They seem to get it much more than the religious people because the undeserving know their need, while those representing the religious system often don't. Luke is very deliberate about pointing this reality out in his narratives, consistently presenting the marginalized as the ones without status as more insightful than anybody else. This is no exception. The important people such as the Romans and the Jewish rulers, had continuously mocked Jesus, even requesting the release of Barabbas in his place. See Luke 23, 13-25. Now this insignificant, undeserving criminal makes a request that reveals a deep understanding about Jesus' status and identity. The third part of the request, when you come in your kingdom, shows that this criminal had come to believe that the crucifixion was not the end of Jesus. Furthermore, he had come to understand that beyond the cross was the kingdom, and that, in fact, Christ's suffering was consistent with his kingship, not contrary to it. Perhaps this man was the only witness of Jesus' death, who understood that the charge against Jesus that was inscribed on his cross 
was a fulfillment of prophecy about his salvific suffering. But why would Jesus even listen to this younger son? Has he not caused enough shame already? Perhaps he shouldn't even respond. After all, Kakurgos don't deserve any good promises, do they? Well, unless that person is your undeserving son and you are his compassionate father. The surprising response from a loving Savior. Jesus answers with the eagerness of a parent responding to a desperate child. He couldn't run to him, embrace him, and kiss him like the father of the prodigal because his hands and feet were nailed to the cross. He did all of that with words instead, passionate and eager words. Truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Verse 43. The comma that appears in the NASB version has been omitted because it is absent in the Greek original. The response starts with a truly amen in Greek, highlighting the veracity and the importance of the assurance about to be given. Jesus continued with, I say to you, bringing into focus the subject and the object of the response. In other words, Jesus is saying to this man, I am the source of the assurance and you, my undeserving child, are the recipient. What follows is the most surprising response, which is only narrated in the Gospel of Luke, the core theological theme of which highlights the salvation for all. We will distinguish four sections in Jesus' response, but before we go to these sections, let's review the order of the words in the original Greek, because that will help us determine the force of each word in the sentence. The original Greek reads with the following word order. Truly to you, I say today, with me, you will be in paradise. Today. Jesus didn't want this man to wonder about his fate until Jesus came in his kingdom. No, this criminal could have the assurance of salvation today, at that very moment, without waiting one more second. No anxiety, no uncertainty, just assurance. Today. The word today highlights the immediacy of the assurance of salvation throughout Jesus' ministry. Remember? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke 4, 21. See also 19, 9. You will be. The assurance is given in the second person singular in the future tense, and it is a sure thing. You will be. Not you might be, nor let me think if you will be. That very day, God's child could have the assurance that he was going to spend eternity with his father in his father's household. This was not the end for him, even though it surely looked like it. His presence with Jesus in his kingdom was not a possibility. It was a reality. Woo-hoo! What would it take for us to believe that we will be with Jesus? Paradise. Jesus said, you will be in paradise. Paradise. Remember? The nursery God made for his children, the place he created for their delight, 
the special garden in the middle of which you can find a tree of life? Remember the very place God's children lost back in Genesis 3? Wow, this criminal is the first to be promised a bite from the fruit of the tree of life. He will be in paradise. The Greek word used in Genesis 2 and 3 is paradisus. The New Testament writers, when referencing the Old Testament, use the Greek translation of it called the Septuagint. This is the place. Back with the Creator. This is the only time in all four Gospels that Jesus utters the word paradise. At this very moment, he was opening up a way back home for his children, the way back to the tree of life. While taking upon himself the death penalty they deserved, he had chosen to offer his perfect life, which none of us have, as a ransom for his children. And now he could promise paradise. And his undeserving son was the first recipient of that promise. Surprise! Paradise! The way home has been reopened. You do have an inheritance after all. With me. Perhaps you notice that I have intentionally skipped this phrase so far. In Greek, the weight of the content is in the middle of the sentence. I wanted to leave this important middle part with me to the last. Jesus is saying to him, All of the above is true for one reason, my undeserving child, because you will be with me. You will be in paradise because you are with me. It is not because of you that an inheritance awaits you. No, it's because you are with me. The best robe is my robe of righteousness placed on you, even though you do not deserve it. Do you understand? That is why it's in the middle of the sentence. I am your assurance. It is really meaningful that through the Jewish scriptures, the atoning substitutionary death of the Savior has been illustrated through the death of an animal, many times a calf, bull. See the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, 3 and 6 and 11, 14, 15, 18 and 27. Jesus was that sacrifice for the atoning of sins. The father in the parable of the prodigal son uses the same word that in the Greek Old Testament was used for the bulls of the Day of Atonement. The fattened calf, Luke 15, 23, would be killed and the celebration would begin. Jesus was dying that we may have a place in the father's household. Oh, my soul rejoice. My heart burns within me, and I receive, once again, the assurance of my salvation through His blood. With me, assurance. Some time ago, a preacher was describing an experience. He was part of a group accompanying a high-profile religious political figure on a trip to the Middle East, where some significant talks were about to take place. He described in detail who the important person was and how the rest of them, including him, were just part of his entourage. When they had arrived to their foreign country, the security was tight and the bodyguards surrounding the celebrity kept everyone else at a distance. The man telling the story found himself outside of the security circle. This preacher got desperate and tried to explain to everyone that he was part of the group but to no avail. 
he started to fear that he might have to return to the United States without accomplishing what he had come to do because he could not get in. It was then that something happened that he would never forget. The person he had come with, who by then was already several hundred yards from him, stopped. He turned around, looked at him, and announced in a loud voice, He's with me! At once, the tight circle of security parted just like the Red Sea, and the preacher could simply walk in, just because this important person has said, with me. One day, the undeserving criminal will be walking the streets of gold in paradise. Wait, let's better say, one day I will be walking the streets of gold. I am sure that many will wonder, what am I doing there? How did I get to heaven? Well, I can't wait for Jesus to turn around and in a thunderous voice reply, She is with me! Woohoo! Wow! I get goosebumps just thinking about it, don't you? I am an undeserving child of God, and yet I live with a full assurance of salvation. He has embraced me, kissed me, and has clothed me with his robe of righteousness. I have sandals on my feet because I'm a child of the King. I have prayed the prodigal criminal's prayer, and I have received the same assurance that he got that day. And you will receive the same response. Let's personalize the request, shall we? Fill in the blanks with your name. Jesus, remember me, blank, when you come in your kingdom. Truly, I say to you, blank, today. With me, you, blank, will be in paradise. I live within the paradox of two realities. I am undeserving and I am saved through Jesus Christ, my Lord. He did for me what I could not do for myself. Yes, salvation is for the undeserving. Do you hear that song? Is the Father singing Amazing Grace. My son was lost, but now he's found. Chapter 6, Salvation for the Confused Have you ever been so confused that you were not sure if the news you had just received was bad or good? I have. Such a degree of confusion may seem impossible, but sometimes it does occur. It is a matter of perception, how we interpret reality. I clearly remember what happened to me when I was 12 years old. I had already shared with you that we were living in Michigan for a year as my dad was working on his first master's degree. Since my dad was a student, we were living off the allowance of his sending organization, and money was tight. Still, it was enough to cover our basic expenses, and we were thankful for that. My mother, being so handy, decided to help the family budget by selling various crochet creations. She would make them, and I would sell them door to door. A perfect plan. 
The town surrounding the university was safe, and I spoke just enough English to explain to the surprised homeowners the nature of my visit and to show them the merchandise, which I carried in a big black suitcase. I would take everything out and name the price for each item, and it was quite an inventory. I still remember with vivid details the shapes, colors, and even the prices of my precious treasures. When a homeowner got interested, I would sell an item, then go back to the car where my mother was waiting, watching over me from a distance. We would happily celebrate one or two sales in a good week. But one fateful day, something happened. I knocked on a door and a middle-aged woman invited me in. She seemed very interested in my merchandise. I readily proceeded to show her each item. Having watched my demonstration with interest, she said in a kind voice, Okay, I'll take it. I got excited. Great, I said. Which one? All of them, said the woman. I will take everything you have in your bag. Totally taken by surprise. And without time to recover from my astonishment, I heard her say that she could pay me the whole amount by a check. I still remember the amount, $55. Let me remind you that three and a half decades ago, this was a lot of money, especially for us. It was really a small fortune. The whole bag full of inventory eight to ten items, was about to be sold in one household. I could not believe that it was real. But there was one problem. I had a big dilemma. I didn't know if we could accept checks. At the time, I didn't really understand how checks work. Four decades ago, kids in Argentina didn't have their own checking accounts. I know that a lot has changed since then, But I had no clue if this piece of paper would be any good, and I had to make a decision. I could either decline the check and leave with all my stuff, or I could leave all of my inventory behind and bring to my mother a piece of paper called a check. I chose the latter. I didn't know if we had sold everything or if we had lost everything. I was confused. My mother oblivious to all that was happening inside, was wondering why I was taking so long in this house. Actually, she was getting worried. Then all of a sudden, she sees me running out of that house as if it were on fire. I was literally flying in the air, my feet barely touching the ground. Usually, I walked slowly, leaving the house in a dignified manner. But this was an emergency. My mother was puzzled, to say the least. Having run like crazy for half a block, I finally reached the car with a desperate look on my face. What's wrong? She asked anxiously. I was so out of breath that I could barely speak. Do we accept checks? Yes, she said, trying to make sense of my bizarre behavior. We sold everything, I yelled. Everything. What do you mean by everything? She asked. Yes, everything I had in my bag. All $55 worth of stuff. The whole thing. My bag is empty. And here's the check. Then the good news sank in. 
It was the best sale I had ever made. Only now I could interpret accurately what had happened. We had not lost everything. We had gained everything. I was no longer confused. Now we could start to celebrate my sale of the century. In the next few pages, we will go over some fascinating accounts in the last chapter of this gospel. Luke 24 is one of my personal favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, but no one is celebrating because they're all confused. His disciples think that they have lost everything. They don't understand what has happened. They are sad. They are depressed and hopeless in their confusion. But they are about to be given a totally different perspective and their confusion will turn into a mega joy. Yes, they had not lost everything. On the contrary, they had gained everything through Jesus. Salvation for all. He is about to show them and us how the Savior always reaches out to the sad and confused. Nonsense. Confusion was understandable under the circumstances. We are told that the women saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Luke 23:55. Emphasis supplied. So when they are going to the tomb, bringing spices on that Sunday morning, see Luke 24, 1, they already know what they're going to see. The same thing, wouldn't you think? But instead, they found the stone rolled away and did not find the body of Jesus, verses 2 and 3. But they had seen the body inside. No wonder they were perplexed. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, verse 4. I love Luke's inclusio. This is a technical term to describe narrative bookends, when something starts and ends in the same way. At the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, when receiving the unexpected angelic announcement, the shepherds became afraid. See Luke 2.9. Now, at the end of it, when the angels show up, the women respond with fear. See Luke 24.5. But then the greatest announcement follows. He's not here, but he has risen. Verse 6. In other words, woo-hoo! Can you imagine receiving this news? The fact that the tomb was empty is the core theological proclamation regarding the resurrection for the Christian church until today. This was not some kind of spiritual resurrection with the body still in the tomb. No, this was not just the resurrection of Christ's divinity with his humanity remaining in death. No, Jesus was resurrected body and soul. The tomb is empty. He lives. So what could be the antidote against their fear and confusion? Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Verses 6 and 7. Emphasis supplied. Remember? I think this is the antidote for confusion still today. When you are not sure about God's heart, remember the cross. When you are not sure if God will be with you in the future, 
Remember the way he has been with you in the past. Even when you walk through difficulties, he never left you. When you get afraid and your heart is troubled, remember his promises. He went to prepare a place for us and he's coming back soon. See John 14, 1 to 3. The assurance for the future is found in the past. Your assurance of salvation is found at the cross. And they remembered his words. Luke 24, 8. Emphasis supplied. The women remembered and went out to proclaim Jesus' resurrection. I love it. This would have been quite an embarrassing account for the first century church. They surely didn't make this one up. The first announcement of Jesus' resurrection was made to women. Women! This was hard to understand. As I mentioned in the second chapter of this booklet, there were two groups of people in the first century whose testimony would not have been accepted in a court of law because it was considered worthless. Shepherds and women. I love the fact that Luke mentions that God chose shepherds to be the first witnesses of Jesus' birth, Luke 2, and he chose women to be the first witnesses of his resurrection, Luke 24. Woo-hoo! So, the women came proclaiming the good news, and the men didn't believe them. When they tried to tell the apostles, these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. Verse 11, emphasis supplied. Nonsense? How could it be nonsense when Jesus had talked about this so many times before? Ah, I know, they didn't remember. Peter decided to check it out for himself and went to the tomb, and he didn't find Jesus either. He went away confused, wondering what had happened. See verse 12. Was this good news or bad news? Had they lost everything or maybe not? Every once in a while, we all need a reality check. They certainly did. After all, perception is the interpretation of reality. A journey of perception. Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus. Verse 13. The text seems to imply that these two are from among those who thought that the whole resurrection story told by the women was nonsense. They are on a journey that will take approximately seven miles. Verse 13. And they are discussing all these things that had happened, including the report of the women. Verse 14. One of the Lucan themes is journeys. Everyone is traveling and on the way to some place. But these are not merely geographical trips, but journeys of perception. And the journey to Emmaus is no exception. Something amazing happens. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Verse 15. The resurrected Lord, of whom the angels had told the women, shows up in their midst. Only the reader is let in on the secret, while the two travelers don't recognize him. In the Gospels, physical blindness and sight are closely related to spiritual insight and the ability to recognize the identity and mission of Jesus. They don't get it, at any level. 
They don't know who he is and what he has done. Sometimes I think how often our tears block our view of Jesus. I wonder how many times our mistaken perception delays our joy. But I am so happy that Jesus always walks beside the sad, the depressed, and the confused. Always. If you are crushed and down today, may you come to believe that God is with you. So the dialogue begins. And he said to them, What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you are walking? Verse 17. In response to Jesus' question, they stopped walking. They stood still, looking sad. Verse 17. They just couldn't believe it. They stopped walking because it was incredible. Who was this man who knew nothing of their sadness? Their anguish comes through in Cleopas' question. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Verse 18, emphasis supplied. I am amused by Jesus' response. What things? Verse 19. It's as if he asks, Did anything happen this weekend? For a long time, I thought his answer was simply an expression of humor. Then I understood that he was giving them a chance to explain their version of the story. Their version. We lost everything. In six verses, verses 19 to 24, they will explain to Jesus their version of these things that had happened that weekend. I found four obstacles in their view that blocked their minds and left them confused. The same can happen to us today. These obstacles can become as heavy baggage that we carry in our spiritual discernment, and they can rob us of the joy of our salvation. The first one is limited perception. The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all the people, verse 19. Definitely, Jesus gave prophecies and acted as a prophet many times. He even alluded to himself as a prophet, Luke 4, 24. But he was so much more than that. He was the Messiah. He was and is God, the Savior of the world. But they did not perceive that. The greatest obstacle in our spiritual discernment is our limited perception. We don't understand or see everything. Yet, in our limited perception, we want to judge, or rather misjudge, God's actions, His timing, His motives, His intervention, or the lack of it. When we come to trust God, We come to trust His perception over ours, even if we don't understand everything. The second perceptional piece of baggage that they're carrying is finality. It all seems done and final to them. The chief priests and our rulers delivered Him to the sentence of death and crucified Him, Luke 24, 20. Jesus had told them many times that the crucifixion would not be the end. But it felt like the end to them. Have you ever felt like that? Your marriage is on the rocks. 
your job is gone, a friendship just ended. That's it. I'm done. It is hard to imagine that there's anything good left. That God, in fact, has the ability to turn all things for the good of those who love Him. Romans 8.28 And dreams die very slowly. Very slowly. I have a mug that I use almost every morning for breakfast. It was sent to me by my dear friends Mirta and Alan. It reads, Just when the caterpillar thought the world was over, it became a butterfly. And this is about to happen to these two travelers on the way to Emmaus. For a Christian, there are no dead ends in this world. Not even death. In Christ, we have eternal life. The third obstacle in their understanding is regret. But we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Verse 21, emphasis supplied. Sound familiar? I was hoping that this was the person God had for me. We were hoping our kids would turn out all right. I was hoping to be finished by now. We were hoping He would redeem Israel. You were hoping? He has redeemed the world. He can do immeasurably more than all we ask, imagine, or hope. Keep hoping. Keep imagining. God's ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts than our thoughts. Don't let regret about the past prevent you from your present and future. The last obstacle is the most dangerous and prevalent. Unbelief. Some women among us amazed us. Verse 22. By the way, yes, women are amazing. Don't you think? You better. But that wasn't their main point. Some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. Verses 22 to 24. At some level, they seem to recall Jesus' prophecy about the third day. Verse 21. Now they have a first-hand report, a supernatural vision, and facts that the tomb was empty. But they did not believe because they didn't see. Belief in terms of sight would no longer be available because Jesus would ascend to heaven. That's why the believer works by faith and not by sight. It is not a silly faith. It is based on many facts. But at some point, you must choose to believe. And now it is time for Jesus' own version, his own interpretation. Jesus' version. I gain everything for you. Before we start, I want to tell you that Jesus' words in this section have become a core concept in my ministry. In this story, Jesus will explain how to interpret Scripture as a whole. And he said to them, Oh, foolish men! and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Then beginning with Moses, and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. 
verses 25 to 27. Wow! I wish I could have attended that theology class on the resurrection day. Somehow, their unbelief had not allowed them to interpret the scripture accurately. There was a plan. Christ had to go through this. And the plan was explained from the beginning of the Bible, Moses and all the prophets. The verb to explain, from the Greek, dirmenuo, contains the root word for hermeneutics, which in English identifies the methodology of interpreting a biblical text. Here Jesus provides the best biblical interpretive rule ever. All the law of Moses and the prophets are about him. The Jewish scriptures contained the DNA of Jesus' identity and mission. The Exodus? About him. The Passover? About him. The Kingsman Redeemer concept? About him. The Jubilee? About him. The suffering Messiah, even though an oxymoronic concept for the confused disciples, had been proclaimed since the beginning of the Jewish scriptures. This is the best interpretive tool you will ever get. If we could just learn to read every verse of the Bible in the light that comes from the cross of Christ, our perceptions would align with His and our joy would be complete. After this explanation, when Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them, actions that Jesus had performed in the Last Supper that foreshadowed His death, see Luke twenty-two nineteen. Then their journey of perception climaxed as they realized who he really was. Their eyes were now opened. Please read this fascinating account in Luke 24, 30 to 35. When they understood the real meaning of the scriptures, which is Jesus' death and resurrection, their hearts started burning. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Verse 32, the same will happen to us, guaranteed. The Bible is not just a nice ethical code, as important as that may be. It is the history of our redemption through Jesus Christ. Christ crucified from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about Jesus. This was Jesus' own articulation of the purposes of God fulfilled through him that weekend. They had not lost everything. He had gained everything on their behalf. And now it was time to go out there and proclaim salvation to all in his name. Connecting the dots. They got so excited that on that very hour, verse 33, they decided to go back to Jerusalem to tell everyone. They didn't feel their tired legs or the seven miles back. They just had to go back. They were overflowing. I feel so sad when some churches spend hours and hours of training for their members in methodology for evangelism and witnessing, as important as these tools may be, without really lifting up Christ, beholding Him, and letting the instructors point directly to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, explaining the scriptures in this light. When people get it, you don't have to tell them to go tell others. They will do that no matter what. Because it is an overflow of their joy and assurance in the Lord. 
They may run seven miles or 27 miles. The passion for Jesus takes over and the Holy Spirit blesses their Christ-centered testimony. This is what happened to these two. They had to go back. When they got there, everybody was talking. The Lord had appeared to Simon Peter. See verse 34. Now the two travelers relate their experience. They have seen the Lord also. See verse 35. While all of them are excitedly talking and chatting and rejoicing, I wonder what time of the day was, Jesus himself shows up in the room. Peace be to you. Verse 36. Can you imagine? The disciples are fearful. See verse 37. Just as the shepherds and the women. So Jesus shows them his hands and his feet and invites them to touch him. See verse 39. Oh, my loving Jesus, you always meet us where we are and you bring us closer and closer to you. Even in the midst of our doubts and confusion, your love is so amazing. After spending a few moments with them and eating a broiled fish in front of them, verses 42 and 43, Jesus starts the same explanation that he had given the two travelers, this time in more detail, repeating the same hermeneutical principle. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, verses 44 and 45. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms is a complete formula for the Jewish scriptures that we have come to call the Old Testament. His disciples knew their Bible, but they did not understand that it was all about Jesus and the salvific act of God through him. Jesus opened their minds. The Greek verb for open had been used throughout Jesus' ministry when he opened the eyes of the blind or the ears of the deaf. Now he opens his disciples' minds. Why? To understand the scriptures. It is possible to read the scriptures and still have our minds closed. Our minds become open when we understand that not just the New Testament, but all the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms are in service to the good news of Jesus Christ. I particularly like the verb to understand. This verb does not mean to read for the first time or to repeat what is written. It means to go deeper in the meaning, to gain insight regarding the scriptures. A scholar once proposed an interesting English translation for this verb, to connect the dots, and I love it. They had not connected the dots. That's why they were confused. They did not understand that the tabernacle, the day of atonement, the Sabbath, and countless other cherished concepts in the Jewish scriptures related to Christ. Now it was clear. Now they were ready. Jesus, after explaining to them that he had to die and rise again, verse 46, gives them the commission of proclaiming the good news to all, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, verse 47. To all? Are you serious, Jesus? Salvation is for all? 
Yes! The inclusivity of God's blessings had already been promised to Abraham. See Genesis 12.3. Now it was time for the core proclamation of the Christian church, forgiveness of sins in his name to all. They would be Jesus' witnesses, and God would send power from on high to accompany this proclamation. The Holy Spirit, see Luke 24, 49, and Acts 2. They had not lost everything. No, no. On the contrary, Jesus had purchased salvation for everyone, and now they were to go and tell this good news to all. Salvation for all. Tears were rolling down my cheeks as I watched the last of the 33 trapped Chilean miners emerge from their stony grave. Every single one of them had been saved. Cheers and celebration followed as the whole world watched in amazement. It was one of the most amazing rescues in the history of the world. All Every single one of them had been rescued. The strong and the weak, the fragile, the healthy, and the sick. Joy was exuberant because the plan had been successful. In a much greater scale, Luke tells the story of the rescue of the world. Sin separated God and man, and we were buried under it forever. But surprise! Oh, my soul, rejoice. The Savior came down from heaven into the pit of sin, lived and died and lived again. God simply refused to go through eternity without us. Heaven would not rest until everyone who wanted to be saved was. God provided a way where there was no way. And salvation was for all, not just the rich and famous. It was for the least, the last, and the lost. Salvation is for the fearful, the marginalized, the outsiders, the destitute, the unworthy, and the confused. Salvation is for you and me. The gospel ends when Jesus ascends to heaven, Luke 24, 51, promising to come back for us, see Acts 1, 11. And the most amazing thing happens. Once they got it, once the disciples understood the scriptures and the plan, once they accepted the assurance of what Jesus had accomplished for them, then they celebrated. Because they now knew that this was good news. They had not lost everything. They had gained everything through Jesus Christ. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Luke 24, 52 and 53, emphasis supplied. Yes, you got it. Mega joy. Just like the angels announced at the beginning of the gospel. Now the disciples have the same great mega joy. May our minds be opened to accept God's plan and our hearts burn within us as we understand that our salvation is assured in Jesus. Let's say it together, shall we? One, two, three. Woo-hoo! For more information and resources, please go to 
jesus101institute.com.